Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This year marks the 50th birthday of your favourite Sunday World newspaper. To celebrate, we're looking back over some of the front page stories and the scandals with the big name journalists who made it the People's Paper. So join us to reel in the years over the coming weeks on Crime World and a special 50th birthday party event to be held on September 27th at the Sugar Club in Dublin. We have 50 tickets to give away for this live Crime World event to mark the big occasion. For information on how to enter, go to our Crime World social media channels on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. 50 Years at the Sunday World, a Crime World special. Times were different and I think probably initially it started off with, in the north, they were slipping pages in for some northern stories. But uh, in the late 1980s, then a decision was made to create, uh, you know, a full Northern Ireland edition. But really, I suppose the the mid 80s is when you would have been aware of the Sunday world. You were making a move into into Belfast full time. And I think probably we'll start with the significant event being the uh, then editor Jim Campbell's shooting in 1984. Well, without doubt, we can say Jim Campbell established the name of the Sunday world, the identity of the Sunday world, and the reputation of the Sunday world. He was a formidable uh, reporter who had a, a previous track record in Belfast, mm. and his speciality was uh, loyalist and Republican paramilitaries. And uh, he, he was synonymous with the Sunday world. But he'd been writing a series of articles on a man called Robin Jackson, who was a, a, a very dangerous loyalist paramilitary, a member of the Ulster Volunteer Force. He was the brigadier mm. of the UVF in Mid-Ulster. And uh, he was very unhappy about the accuracy of Jim Campbell's reporting of what he was up to. And what he was up to was sectarian murder, but it was much more sinister than that because we now know that he was a British state agent. Mm. And, an and was that the kind of stuff that Jim Campbell was writing about? It was. was he hinting it, at that? Yes, yes. Yeah. He, he, he knew more about him that, than anybody. And, uh, and, and I know this because I've looked into it uh, since. Uh, what, what happened then was uh, Robin Jackson, who Jim Campbell had given the name the Jackal, uh, and, and everybody knew exactly who he was talking about, uh, was, was unhappy about Campbell's articles and approached the UVF in Belfast uh, to do something about Jim Campbell. Mm. So he was shot on the doorstep of his home. Of his home. They 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 went to the door. His wife answered the 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 the, the door the, the, the door and uh, they asked for Jim Campbell by name. And uh, he was working upstairs and he he he'd just finished or something. He came down, opened the door, and the man uh, he was shot several times. And was he was it a punishment shooting or did they try and kill him? Oh, it was a, without doubt, it was a murder bid. Without right. a doubt, when the gunman left there, they were certain they had killed him. Right. And uh, it was only the the great skills of the surgeon who per, 
performed the emergency operation on him that his life was saved. And I'm hitting you with this, and you might, maybe you don't know, but like that was unusual for a journalist to be targeted, even in the north. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and yeah. was that kind of the first time? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, yeah. I never heard uh, any other journalist being. That was a murder bid without yeah. question. And uh, he was very, very lucky to survive. So it was a bit of history, okay. And was the Sunday world, like, you know, within that those times, and obviously first we had the slipped pages, as we call it, and before the full edition, did it lean to either side, or was it a, a, a media organ that just literally went after anybody, no matter what, their creed, religion, whatever? That's that's exactly the reputation Jim had was mm. he was he was ruthless against both sets of of paramilitaries and he exposed things that weren't in the normal press and there were other Sunday newspapers but none of them could touch the Sunday World for in depth uh, articles about the 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 street talk of the of the yeah. people in the street actions and for proper investigative yeah. crime reporting because it's no doubt yeah. is has well, always had, been the home for that. But was it unusual for a newspaper in the north to have leanings to neither side? Well, no. Most newspapers uh, ha- had a tradition, you know. Yeah. And uh, the 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 Sunday World was different, but because it was essentially a Dublin-based newspaper, in in loyalist eyes, that was enough for right. for to ha- have it. Uh, uh, cast down as what they called a Fenian rag. A Fenian rag, okay, yeah. But actually, it it wasn't a political. It, it wasn't political. No, it was. It was apolitical, it was, basically. It, it wasn't. It was. It was for for its day. It was an excellent uh, product and very unusual. Very yeah. unusual. Very Irish. Uh, a, a very uniquely Irish product mm. where, where it combined uh, fun. Mm. and a bit of uh, Sunday sex Mm. and serious paramilitary stories. Mm. So um, Jim Campbell did recover, but probably psychologically never properly, maybe. I mean, he's not talking for himself here, but, you know, you can only imagine. Yeah, he moved his base and his wife and family to to Donegal, and he's there to this day. We're glad to be able to report yeah, and I'm sure still, if there's a knock on the door, they they yeah. must think of that. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it had a serious psychological mm. effect on him and his family, of course. So, um, so 1989, five years after that shooting of Jim Campbell, there was the decision to have a full Northern Ireland edition of the Sunday World. Yeah, um, you come in to that. I came in just realm just shortly after that or around that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, f- the first time I wrote an article for the Sunday World was uh, uh, was on Bob Dylan's fiftieth birthday. Right. I wrote an article about Bob Dylan and a row that he had with my friend Dominic Behan, a, D- a Dublin songwriter, and there was a, a row over a song called "God in Our Side," and Dominic had written a song about the IRA called "The Patriot Game," and Dylan had taken the idea. But uh, Dominic's weak link in his argument was it was a traditional tune and therefore Dylan did not own anything. Uh, but there was a, a contentious article, uh, uh, co- 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 a legal yeah. action about it. And uh, I, I wrote a, uh, an article about Dylan. That was the first article I ever wrote for the Sunday World. Now it went sort of a little harder than that afterwards. You, that's, you, that's you steered a little bit off showbiz and more to the kind of the crime pages yeah. uh, and still do. Yeah, that's right. But um, so tell me, we were going to talk about, you know, the early days of that, your experience of it. And really 1993, like the 90s in Belfast were just, they must have been, it must have been a horrendous difficult time well, to be a journalist working in the middle of it. Such a tiny city. Yes, a small city and 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 small 
a province. I mean, mm. six counties of of uh, Irish thirty two. You could be anywhere you wanted to be within a few hours. Uh, so it was a difficult time, very tense. There was in the nineties reflected uh, sort of upgearing of the paramilitary uh, as they as they went towards the ceasefires that we eventually all knew were coming. Mm. But there was a, an increase in paramilitary violence, and of course there were the big importation of uh, guns. Uh, for for the IRA from abroad, and also the loyalists uh, were were successfully brought in guns from South Africa. So it was uh, it could easily have slipped into a Beirut type situation with gun gangs roaming the streets, and it was very very close to that. Now two hours down the road nowadays on the uh-huh. on the motorway, um, our journalists down here would have been concentrating on crime, yeah. drugs. Yeah. I mean, we're coming into the sort of the second really wave of the heroin epidemic. Yeah. You've got the big names. You have the, the John Gilligans upcoming in the early 90s. You have the teenagers in Crumlin. You have this sort of, I suppose, generation coming of age under the shadow of those big names like, you know, Martin Cahill and those. It's all about drugs. Mm. It's all about them moving from armed robbery into the drug industry. Yeah. Yeah. Um and heroin and ecstasy, really. But that wasn't in the ether in, in, in the North. No. Um, the, the, the dominant factor in life in the North was the, the paramilitaries. They, you, you had a good day or a bad day, according to what they allowed you to, to have. There was always crime, and it, it, and it was just uh, out of sight. Mm. Uh, but when they started to move into... Uh, after the the paramilitary ceasefires in '94, uh, the, the 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 criminals became more open, and the 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 drugs became a bigger thing. But then again, they were targeted by the IRA in a different name. Mm. They were targeted by an organisation called uh, Direct Action Against Drugs, which was the IRA by a different name, and uh, up to over a dozen. Uh, alleged drug dealers were were executed uh, for their involvement in it. So uh, life was changing in the north. Uh, in many ways, it was becoming normal uh, because crime was out front for its own sake. Uh, but we still had the the the, the hangover or of the IRA and uh, loyalist and republican organisations. So, who were the characters in the Sunday World offices in those early nineties? Uh, well, Jim uh, moved to Donegal and myself and Jim McDole. Uh, Jim McDole took over as the northern editor of the of the Sunday World. Uh, Martin O'Hagan uh, worked there, and uh, we 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 built up uh, our, our our product uh, by targeting. Uh, uh, drug dealers, because mm. but the, the the drugs were different in the north because we didn't have as you you pointed out, Nicola, uh, we didn't have heroin, uh, but what they did have ecstasy, yeah. and ecstasy was a loving for yeah. for drug dealers and drug users, and they all loved each other, so it was a bit difficult to to, to target people who were very popular, <gasps> uh, but but uh, but target them we did yeah. because uh, parents could see the dangers of, of this stuff and the the spin-off particularly of ecstasy where some younger people would slip into a depression mm-hmm. uh, coming off it. So there were, whilst it looked all peace and love, uh, there, there were danger much. It was only a short reprieve because drugs would come in and as we know now, yes. talking about the yeah. story you're working on at the moment, but... Um, would it have been all about naming the likes of, like, for example, Billy Wright, was he named? Who were the big characters of those days that, that would have kind of been akin to the, the crime lords yeah, in the yeah. South? But who would have been the well, big Well, Billy Wright essentially was a loyalist. Yeah. But loyalists were, were, were into drug dealing. Uh, so he he was a big name. Uh, Johnny Adair was a big name. He wasn't a drug dealer, but everyone round about him appeared to be, and there was a lot of money associated with it. But it, 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 it and on the on the Republican side, drugs were available. Uh, the, the 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 IRA denied any mm-hmm. knowledge of it. But I think maybe in the early days they 
would have dabbled in it because the, the money was huge and, uh, and, and easily made. But the likes of Billy Wright and, and Johnny Adair would have made fr- front page stories a lot of the time yeah. and what they were doing, their activities largely sort of in their minds being political mm-hmm. and, you know, they were activities of terrorism really. Mm-hmm. Was there similar characters on the Republican side or were they sort of more careful maybe not to... Um, no, well, the Republican side was always much more disciplined and much more led from the top down. Mm. Uh, re- Republican uh, figures uh, within certainly the IRA were not allowed to operate individually. Uh, certainly, certain areas they they ran it kind of like fiefdoms, but that uh, was a much more loyalist thing, where right. areas were controlled by the local loyalist paramilitary. And these guys became, you know, crassly, I suppose, celebrities of sorts. They were they were on the front page. Their activities were being monitored constantly by journalists and. Sometimes they didn't like it. Yeah. Um, was it 93 that the offices in Belfast were bombed? I think it was October 93. Uh, uh, it was a Friday morning. I was around at the BBC making my way back and uh, I could see this activity. The office was in High Street at that time and what happened was uh, the, Jim Campbell's daughter worked there on the front desk and uh, two men came in uh, through the security buzzer innocently asked their way in, came in, left a bag and, and t- said there was a bomb in it. So the entire staff who were in the office at the time uh, had to leave by jumping over the bomb to get out. Mm. As it turned out, it was, a, it was a hoax bomb, but it was a serious bit of terror and it was directly aimed at the, at the Sunday World office. And like, how did that, you know, manifest itself with yourselves? You were out there your names on the stories. There's lots of people who work in newspapers in the background and in media in the background who don't have their names on them. But journalists are really in the front line, aren't we? Well, it, it was make your mind up time. I mean, some, and it was one of those times where you have to make a decision, am I going to continue with this or am I going to look for something else to do? Uh, but everyone in the Sunday world continued on. No one mm. left to... To, to look for another job. They, maybe there weren't any other yeah, jobs. Yeah, well, maybe there wasn't, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, to their credit, they they continued on mm. and, uh, and faced down the threats. And how did you kind of, like, as a group of people, cope with that? Because there certainly wouldn't have been anything like that in Dublin mm. over the years. Obviously, individual journalists have been under serious threat um, in the South, etc. But... It, it wasn't that same sort of idea that it was recurring. I mean, that's only what... It's less than 10 years after Jim Campbell's shot that the offices, you know, that there's a hoax bomb perhaps, but it's still evacuated. And there's other stuff happening, of course, isn't there? There's journalists are getting individual threats all the time. So how do you cope with that? Because it is, there's no doubt about it, no matter how tough you are. Yeah. That's really stressful. Well, my memory of it, there was a lot of um, self uh, anesthetizing went on, usually in the pub. And uh, and, the, and the pubs in those days were a great place for journalists to meet and swap stories, give information, receive information. But uh, there was a lot of uh, drink taken and some yeah. more than others found it as a, a mechanism for coping with the stress mm. of the job. It was just a way of life of what it was. There's sort of an attitude as well, I think, um, maybe things have changed now, but sort of older school journalists like ourselves that you didn't want to make a fuss and you'd feel a little bit embarrassed if you sort of mentioned that you're a bit stressed that, out. So you just... Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That was that was, that was it, you know. You, it's sort of a bit of a tough image or yeah, something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Silly, actually, yeah. when you think of it now yeah. in, the, in these times where yes. we have to talk about all our feelings and everything. But oh. certainly, yeah, you'd feel... Yeah, that's right. You're letting the side down. Oh, I agree totally. But, <laughs> you know? uh, but the, the pub certainly helped with all of that. You yeah. Know? And it was a craziness. And I mean, I do think that um, not talk about anyone individually, but I think that kind of a lifestyle and I think a lot of people working in in, um, policing have that same sort of world that they live in. And sometimes it can cause difficulties in relationships, can't it? It's very difficult to go home and sort of be act normal when you've had some crazy stuff happening during the day and you get into that zone. I think people in military have it as well. When they come back from tours abroad, they find it very difficult to settle back into the normal existence. Um, Somebody wants you to 
fix a washing machine or something. It doesn't. I know it's a, it's a weird life. It's a weird job, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not a normal job. It's not. Uh, I mean, I I find myself even to this day a lot of my work starts from thinking. I spend hours thinking about things. You know, nobody knows I'm doing it. it maybe You're looks, creative. Yeah, <laughs> it maybe looks as though I'm doing nothing, but I really am uh, working because I'm thinking, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, trying to explain that to someone who really does a normal job. is. Not... I do exactly the same, but nobody actually believes me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but yeah, no, you do a lot of thinking and thinking about ways to, yes, ways to yeah. approach something in yes. different ways and all yes, the rest yes. of it. Um, I suppose coming up towards the end of the 90s, the mid to the end 90s, peace was coming. Yes. This peace agreement was coming. Uh, but still there was these agitators. There always will be and there still is. And these individuals and the Sunday world has a particular way of, I mean, I always say <laughs> whenever there's something going on, I want a head and a plate. Yeah. But we, we, we're the same really as, as a newspaper. You yeah. want to show yeah. whatever it is that's happening. You know, you want to show exactly who is responsible or hold yeah, somebody yeah, responsible. Yeah. Um, and you talked about Colin McGinty mm -hmm. uh, speaking to you, who was our, our, our former editor. Um, who did he want to? Was it the, the Army Council of the IRA? Yeah, after the well, what happened was that the, the ceasefires happened in, in 94. First of all, the, 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 the end of August, the IRA ceasefire and the, the, the loyalists followed in October. Uh, so we thought peace had come, mm -hmm. but like everything in the north, it takes an age to 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 move on anything. It's, it's a lot better now, but it's still very very slow. And uh, so the talks process was was eternal, and there were rumblings within the IRA that they had made a wrong decision. It was bad faith from the Brits. Uh, they weren't including them in proper talks. And there were rumblings about a possible breaking of the ceasefire. And then it happened two years later, 1996. A bomb which came from South Armagh was detonated in Canary Wharf in London. Mm. Two men were killed, a cleaner and a, and a shop owner, and, uh, and, and many people injured with a huge uh, damage bill as well. So... It was a Thursday night. It was reported on the Sunday. And the following week, Colin McGinty rang the office and said that he felt that no one in Ireland had voted for the Army Council of the Provisional IRA. No one had voted. No one even knew who they were. Yeah. And yet these people took it upon themselves to send the bomb to Canary Wharf to wreck the peace. And he felt that we should, as a newspaper... Let the people know the human beings uh, control the Army Council of the IRA. And the best way for us to do that is find out who was on the Army Council with seven men and, and tell the public. And we did so that. So name them. We did that. Mm. Now, I mean, that as a journalistic feat is, I mean, there's so much. I mean, it's not just a case of, you know, going out, taking down a list. I mean, you have to be so correct. Imagine getting one of them wrong. That's Imagine right. getting anything wrong yes. in that situation. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be front yeah. page news. Yeah. Yeah. These people are going to be named for the entire country to see who yeah. they are. Yeah. So how do you go about that? Well, I mean, we, we, we've established good contacts, yeah. obviously. Yes, exactly. And we, we and we double checked with each other uh, and had many meetings in the course of that week to 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 upgrade our intelligence mm. and our knowledge of, of the situation. Uh, so it wasn't just cobbled together on a Saturday night or something. It was a very, very thorough, detailed investigation. And uh, and it did send uh, huge ripples through even the world of journalism because it hadn't been done. Mm. Uh, but we were complimented. Uh, within days, I got a phone call from... Were the seven named on the front? Were they all pictured on the front page, one after the other? And inside, you know. The, yeah. yeah and, and inside as well. And, and people who played a, rest, a lesser but equally significant role in the IRA. And, mm. and we named every single one of them. And you were still a Fenian newspaper, were you? 
Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, they have to remind them of that, you know. Uh, that, Even though you're the only media who's actually yes, kind of going for the jugular yes, and naming yes, them. Yes, But um, I'll just tell you one thing, just as a sort of compliment to the standard of journalism in the Sunday world. Um, I was contacted a few days later by the BBC and uh, and eventually a Panorama a Newsnight programme went out and uh, it was based on our material. Right. Uh, so it was quite a complimentary uh, phone call that we got. So coming up to 1998 with the actual the agreement and, of course, Clinton is over and, you know, there's a lot of fanfare and all the rest of the... That's the same year the Oma bomb happens, yeah? The Oma bomb happened in August. Yeah. 29 people, including the mother of uh, unborn twins, uh, That's the real IRA. Yes, the real IRA. And that was the first major... Uh, a, a attack that they carried out. Funnily enough, three months before that, we had also named some of them, <laughs> including Mr. McKevitt, uh, Michael McKevitt from Dundalk, yeah. who, who who since died. But we we named him in the Sunday World, so we were on the ball there. But that particular day, uh, I have to give credit to our colleague Martin O'Hagan. He was straight down to Oma and did the research, did not have a lot of time in his hands, mm. only a few hours, but he managed to get the right figure that it was 29 dead, mm. and we put that in the front page the following day. I mean, these were still the days people have to remember of picking, you know, collect pictures, getting yeah. pictures at, at doors, yeah. going yeah. into people's houses, yeah. Yeah. having a cup of tea with them yeah. while they went through biscuit tins of uh, pictures, uh, and, and you'd get a photograph of a victim perhaps, yeah. And get in your car and drive back to the office. Yeah, yeah. That's it, still then, yeah. It, it was a, still then. Yeah, it, it was. There was nothing electronic about no. the Sunday world in those days. No, there's phones starting to come in. I'm just trying to remember. I would have been 96, 98. I remember covering Oma. I was working for the Mirror at the time. Uh, um, I could have had a brick then. I think yeah. I could have had a thing that never yeah. worked. Yes, yes. And I remember then when we started filing from the laptops, you'd have to pull in and rent a hotel room. Yeah. And used their phone yeah, the socket. Power, yeah, and yeah. never worked. Yeah, you'd have yeah. it rung in quick, quicker. The, the story, yes, but, yes, uh, that's right. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So people, you know, I mean, that's the kind of journalism. It was a lot of boots on the ground stuff. It was a lot of actually communicating with people, real yes, people, yes. not talking to people on phones or going through social media for no, photographs. No, no, no. It was all about being a communicator. Yeah, 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 and being able to handle yourself in situations like that because. Again, people mightn't understand that you think a lot for your job. <laughs> but um, being able to handle yourself in a situation like that yeah. is a skill yes. in itself uh, as a journalist because you are intruding, you have to be polite, you have to be, you have to balance the whole thing very carefully. Uh, uh, um, your politeness can't also overshadow the fact that this is in the public interest yeah. to get this story and to so do you know what I mean you have yeah. to be a, yeah. a really you, good communicator your old colleague at the mirror Mr. Joe Gord yeah. was a great friend of mine I learned a lot from Joe and uh, one of the things that he, he impressed upon me was the importance of contacts and being able to have people that you could rely on yeah. and go to in a given situation and that meant when you weren't doing a story, to give them a wee phone call and keep in touch with them. Yeah. And uh, I learned that from Joe because when things like OMA happened, we knew local people that we could approach and get a kind of inside track. Or certainly get your your, your path yeah. made yeah. easier into these yeah. terrible situations yes. that you yeah. have to... Yeah. You have to get in at you have to get in first of all. Yes. And then also you have to get out. Yes. And and getting out of a situation yeah. like that where uh, you're surrounded with grieving yeah. people yes. who are suffering raw grief uh, yeah. and just this total lack of comprehension about the terror that has kind of befallen them. Like getting out can be yeah, as difficult yes. as But some of the reporters I saw in the north were extremely skilled would, in, would have been in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You just it came to them naturally. Yeah. But they had the right manners and the right approach and the and the right tone of voice was important at times like that. You mm -hmm. know? Joe Gard, uh, given that you brought him up. Yes. Um he was a stickler for uh for, for certain things, including, as I learned to my peril more than one time. The name of the dog. 
Yes, he, he, he always wanted to know the dog's name. So you could have gone and done the best job of your life, come away with all the pictures that were possibly needed. I mean, you'd be talking about a world exclusive. Yes, yes. And you'd file the story and he'd say, but he'd ring you up, but Nicola, what? I can't do his accent. Geordie accent, yes. wasn't it? And he'd say, big, big, long silence. And then it was, what's the dog's name? And I'd have to admit, I actually don't know, Joe. I'm sorry, I don't know what the dog's name is. <laughs> then you fucked up, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 he was well, he, he did, and he loved uh, he loved last words. Yeah, people's last words. But he he messed up one time with uh, uh, Bernadette Devlin later to become uh, Bernadette McAllister, and uh, he, he she was attacked by loyalist paramilitaries. A serious serious murder bed in her home, and uh, the life was saved by. Uh, soldiers who were were on the scene very quickly got got her away to hospital, but no one thought she was going to survive. And uh, Joe ran a piece the next day, uh, saying that her 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 final words, last testament, was uh, the revolution goes on. But uh, Bernadette survived, and uh, uh, so that, that her last words. But she never held it against them because right, okay. she, 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 she would have liked those to be her last words. Yeah. Well, I think she would. Yeah. At least you complimented her. Well, she liked Joe anyway. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't not. Um, so, you know, it went on after the, the, the peace agreement and, you know, still there were always those. I mean, we talk about the real IRA and they were probably the start of those dissident terror groups coming up and they're a bit like whack-a-mole, aren't they? They're sort of splitting. They're very undisciplined. Mm-hmm. You talked mm-hmm. about the IRA being disciplined. They go from the real IRA to the new IRA to the new new IRA. There's yes. the new INLA. There's the son of the I IRA. I mean, my God, you need a. I can't degree. believe it's not the IRA. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. But and, and that way they've gone, and we're still reporting yes, on them, yes, and, and yes. you know, with their various new titles and new leadership roles, they seem to be very always kind of like two uh, alpha males fighting yeah, for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the leadership I, of those one groupings. I there? think in the run up to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, Nicola, we had a coming together of dynamic figures. Like we had Tony Blair yeah. in, in in London. We had um, Bertie Hearn, Bertie in Dublin, Bill Clinton in America. It really was a great. Uh, dynamic mm-hmm. of of people who were committed to this American idea, Democratic Party of give and take a bit, get a deal done that suited uh, New Labour, it suited Fianna Fáil in Dublin, that was their style, always get a deal done and come away with a deal. And all that came together. Mm. Uh, and that was an incredible achievement. It, it was. was an extraordinary was, achievement, yeah. only been celebrated recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we went on, of course, then there was a lot of darkness by 2001. And that was because Marty O'Hagan, who you've mentioned, one of the journalists in the office, very shockingly didn't survive a shooting mm-hmm. like Jim Campbell. Mm-hmm. He was murdered. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that must have left everybody just really chilled and in many ways, and everything else. But In many ways, Martin's work... Uh, followed on from Jim Campbell, where Jim had uh, targeted this vicious paramilitary called uh, Robin Jackson. Martin O'Hagan was on the case, on Billy Wright's case. And And has he taken over from the Jackal? Directly taken over. He he replaced them. Yeah, he replaced them. And uh, and was an extremely uh, dangerous human being. And uh, he had fallen foul of the mainstream UVF, which was and still is based on the Shankill Road in Belfast. That is the, the hub of the of the Ulster Volunteer Force. And this may be an ignorant question, but was he too dangerous for them? Was he too volatile for them or something? Well, he, he, he believed they were surrendering. Right. And, and said it openly. Right. Uh, so he was dismissed from the, the UVF. But so he set up his own organisation, which was the Loyalist Volunteer Force. Mm-hmm. So this was the the danger. There were some kind of links between him and uh, Johnny Adair. So it looked as though a new, they were going to bigger uh, loyalist... It's kind of been denied, but I think that's fairly accurate. That was going to be a, a, a merger. 
and that would have worried everyone mm. and uh, involved in it. So uh, Martin was uh, was targeted by rights survivors. Mm. Uh, Wright had been shot dead himself in jail, and uh, and many people were suspicious that. It had been facilitated. In 97, he was killed yeah, in the Mays yeah, prison. Yeah, yeah. Um, So his kind of like, so his followers basically yes. would have blamed the likes of Martin O'Higgins and his yeah, reporting yeah, on... on yeah. right. Well, I think Martin's difficulty was he lived in amongst them. Right. And uh, they would have seen him, uh, especially at the weekends when he would have been around uh, his home. Mm. And he was a, a man of routine. He... He did the same thing every Friday when he headed home and that's how they mm. singled him out and, and got him. I suppose, you know, by and large, in the normal world, journalists wouldn't feel that they have to not live by a, a routine. Exactly. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the, the Belfast and the North was and is changing. Mm. It's, I mean, it's a million times better mm. than ever it was. And you can talk about the British... A dirty tricks department, whatever they did, and they did it in in conjunction with the Americans and the Irish government in the end. And uh, but we do have peace. Yeah, we do have peace. So, what um, was the effect of Martin O'Hagan's murder on the on you guys? Well, I think it was it was shocking to everyone. Shocking, mm. and again, the, the big decisions have to be made. Do you stay or do you get out? And I think, again... Do you remember being told? Being told about it, yeah. yeah. What uh, Derek Henderson, my friend at PA, rang me about one o'clock in the morning mm. and uh, he, 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 he he wanted to know uh, about Martin. He, he believed he had been shot in, in Lurgan. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was a huge event and... It was massive, massive news. Were you in and out of the office at the time? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, the, the, the paper had to be changed the next day. It was a mm. Friday night and uh, all the papers were calling in uh, to, to pass on condolences and also to learn a bit about what happened. And was there a suggestion that this was an attack against the Sunday world or was it kind of from the beginning always seen as a personal attack against Martin O'Hagan? Did you feel that they were coming for, or they could have been coming for you guys too? Yeah, well, the, the murder of Martin was essentially uh, targeting Martin, but as a secondary effect, it was an attack on the Sunday world for what the Sunday world was doing to yeah. people like that. I mean, the particular individuals involved in Martin, their names are known. I mean, they were part and parcel of the drugs world. Mm. And would you have, I mean, I always think Belfast is small, but actually it's not, it's quite big. Yeah. Um, you, like, would you have kind of wandered into a place and maybe seen them or no you wouldn't you wouldn't see them in belfast but when when you know that belfast city center is a fairly neutral place there's mm. there's not many places these people would go they tend to stay in their own yeah, suburbs yeah, and, and belfast tends to be a kind of collection of villages yeah uh, that are all joined up but where, where these boys came from they came from the mid ulcer which is still steeped in the plantation the the divisions that were there 300 years ago are still there so you wouldn't have ever been rattling up into a pub there and settling back for a few pints, no, ever? Uh, no, no, yeah. not at all, not at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, and a, a horrendous event, and sometimes it is overlooked, I think, when, you know, some years later, obviously, Veronica Guerin was, had sorry, some years previous, Veronica Guerin had been murdered in uh, the South, and that always seemed to have got more publicity, maybe, than the yes, murder of Martin yeah. Hagen. But nonetheless, he was the only journalist, I think, murdered during the course of the Troubles. Yes, he was. In the north of Ireland. He certainly was. There was another journalist was shot, a journalist stroke academic, but uh, mm. that was Queen's University. Uh, it was loyalists that did that. Mm. So, um, and like, you know, we talk about there being the six counties and that. You'd have been a well-known face, would you? Always. Well, it is, it is a small place, yeah. you know, you, and you, if, if your face is in the paper yeah. uh, every other week, then people get to know you, you know. Yeah, so kind of like the journalists, the Sunday World journalists would have all been known wherever they went and 
you know, I'm sure you had friendly approaches as well. As oh, yes. Not yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, some people are great fans of the Sunday yeah. world, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More people maybe the other way. But go on and tell me about, um, and, you know, not to make light of Martin O'Hagan's murder there, We, you know what I mean, but we'll move on from that. So what were the big stories then that you would have been covered during covering during the noughties? Obviously, um, you know, we couldn't cover that period without talking about Dennis Donaldson. Well, that was a significant story at the time. And Dennis Donaldson, and, and it's still not ended to this day, Dennis Donaldson was a significant figure in the IRA, uh, having joined it in the 60s uh, when he was a bit of a hippie. joined it in 66, I think. And uh, he was a very trusted figure. I had been to the Middle East to see Gaddafi, on behalf of the IRA, he had been in America and uh, and he was a trusted figure by the senior Republicans, including Jerry Adams. Uh, by the time this came along, he had a senior job in Stormont. He was the head of uh, Sinn Féin administration. And then suddenly he appears at a news conference in Dublin where he confesses in public that he had been turned, and for many years he was an, an agent or an asset working for the British inside the Republican movement. It was show-stopping stuff. And then he disappeared. He, he, he just went away, and no one ever heard from him. So I had decided uh, that it might be worth looking at, at this. And I, I knew a man who knew Donaldson well, and he had once told me that he remembered being in a cottage in Donegal uh, with Dennis. Uh, it was Dennis owned the cottage, but he couldn't remember where it, where it was. <laughs> that doesn't sound much to go on. Mm. So I decided I had some contacts in Donegal. My both sets of grandparents were from Donegal, and I would try and track him down. So I went, first of all, to Gidor region, West Donegal, nothing around there, although they had seen him. Uh, so I knew it was a possibility he was in Donegal. I drove further south to the lovely town of Glenties, and I was sitting reading the Irish Times and on the main street in Glenties, and I looked up, and lo and behold, there was Dennis crossing the road to get into his blue car. I can't remember, it might have been a Toyota. And he was facing in my direction. And when he pulled out, I pulled out behind him some distance. He turned left on the back road to Dukri, if you know where that is, down various alleyways. I kept him at a long distance and he pulled in to a cottage I drove on past. He went down into a hollow mm -hmm. I drove on past and came back. And the following morning, uh, we, we, we went back this time and we... When I went to the door, he, he clearly saw me coming to the door and uh, there was a fellow with me and uh, he came out and pulled the door behind him. But well, we chatted for 14 minutes at the door. I was asking him questions about why he had decided to become a British agent, but he said very, very mm. little. Uh, but we had 14 minutes of him on film. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a significant story, big, big story for the Sunday world. But it became even bigger when less than three weeks later, he was shot dead at that spot. And I did 76 interviews in, uh, in, in 48 hours, including uh, Nicola, uh, Emily Maitlis at, at Newsnight. You didn't reveal his actual location. Because there would have been a lot of criticism, I suppose. That well, Emily asked me that. Yeah. Uh, clearly she hadn't seen our article but knew that we had yeah. re revealed who he was. But w we quite deliberately took the decision not to name where he was. And when Emily asked me that, I said, look, all we said was a whitewashed pre-famine cottage yeah. in Donegal. I said it would take you three and a half hours to drive from Malinhead in the in a show in north end of Donegal to Ballyshannon in the south. And there are literally hundreds mm -hmm. and hundreds of whitewashed cottages. Mm -hmm. And um, look, if I always reckon that if a journalist can find somebody or can 
do, you know what I mean? If a journalist, uh, you know, sometimes our photographers get photographs of people whose maybe lives are under threat. Mm-hmm. They're just holding a camera up and taking a fi- photograph of their head. Mm-hmm. Like, if we can do that, mm-hmm. whoever wants to actually kill them, whoever actually wants to track them down has far more resources than probably we ever have. Yes, yes, yes. So in that case, somebody else obviously yeah. had eyes on where he was as well. Oh, yes, yes. And he was behaving and living very openly as such Mm. within that small area, that small village. Well, the other thing is, why I say this isn't finished, is we've recently discovered through uh, the inquest uh, uh, court listings in Donegal into the death of Dennis Donaldson that the Gardaí revealed that a man uh, whom, whom they didn't name uh, who was in serving a lengthy sentence in Scotland um, uh, uh, would be returning to Donegal because they had found DNA evidence relating to him at Dennis Donaldson's cottage. So that's still to come up. But the man is currently serving a lengthy, lengthy sentence in Scotland mm. for the attempted murder of Johnny Adair and his friend Sam Skelly McCrory. Right. They, they received a huge sentence. So, so that was an MI5 bust. Somebody who would take work on yes. either side, as most criminals would. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to move you on to, and this is just one headline I've captured from many of them, but uh, this sort of sums you up in a way. Saturday, January the 16th, we're talking, and it's in uh, it's in the Irish Examiner by Dan <laughs> Buckley. And the headline is, Journalist arrested in home of Robinson's ex-lover. <laughs> Police in the North have confirmed that a journalist with the Sunday World newspaper was arrested inside the East Belfast home of Iris Robinson's former teenage lover. Go on. What was <laughs> happening here? Well, Kirk McCambly was his name. Very interesting story. The, 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 the Robinson story, as most people know, was a huge scandal and it came to light through a BBC Spotlight programme where uh, Dennis Don- uh, Dennis Donaldson, <laughs> where uh, Peter Robinson's wife, Iris, who's an MLA, emerged that she had an affair with a teenage lover called, called Kirk McCambly. And uh, Dara McIntyre did an excellent programme and told the whole world about that. So everyone wanted in on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I did the odd wee piece on it. But uh, uh, the, a very significant story came my way where one day I'm heading home on the bus and I received a phone call from a fellow I knew who said, look, I would like to introduce you to a friend of mine uh, who's renting a house to Kirk McCambly. And he's way behind in his rent and the place is a disaster. Would you like to meet him? And I said, yes, I'll ring you back So when I got off the bus. So I very quickly arranged to go and see this property. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I rang our photographer, Connor McCauley, came with me. And uh, we, we, we go to the place and we've been showing around this lovely, what should have been a lovely semi-detached house in East Belfast, but it was a disaster. There were bits of motorbike lying around, place was a mess, things were broken, and they were behind in the rent. And we were taking some pictures. Uh, we, we, we took some pictures upstairs in one of the bedrooms, and McCambly had written on the wall a poem about Iris Robinson. So it was very interesting from a newspaper point of view. For sure. Yeah. But whilst we were there, the door opened, and it was McCambly's business partner. They owned a cafe that Iris had helped set up. And... Uh, uh, he came in and confronted the man who owned the property. Why are you here? Why? He said, I'm here because you're behind in the rent. So a row goes on between them, which has nothing to do with us. No. Um, but it goes on in in front of Two us. Two innocent souls. Yeah, yeah. and there's a row. <laughs> the row. And the man said he was going to ring the police. And he did. In front of me, he rang the police. And the police went into a panic thinking, it was just before Christmas, I think the police thought it was a tiger kidnapping, that there were men in this. Uh, and the, the police arrived with not guns blazing, but they had machine guns all over the place. And uh, we were asked to step outside. It was freezing cold outside. Mm -hmm. There was a female officer in charge, and uh, she interviewed the man who had made the complaints. And then I suddenly realised the focus was coming on us, and we were getting accused of assaulting him. Never touched him at all. But it sounds, I mean, the 
the headline after the headline. It says Belfast based Hugh Jordan and a second man believed to be a photographer. Yes. Were arrested by police officers around 6.30pm on Wednesday at Kirk McCambly's home in the Belmont area of the city. It's understood the pair were in the 21-year-old's bedroom when they were challenged. Like, it doesn't sound great. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. Which paper was that? Well, that was the examiner. If you want to speak to him, the journalist was a guy called Dan Buckley, so you could give right. him a call now no. after this. Well, that's, that's a bit of gossip that's, that's carried on. We were arrested outside, mm -hmm. and I didn't even know we were arrested. The first I heard of it was the following day when the Belfast Telegraph rang me looking for a comment, and I, I denied that I'd been arrested. Only when I rang the police, to, mm -hmm. uh, I actually had been arrested. But they, so they, they tried for a while, but it ran on for a few years. Yeah. And then they, they withdrew the charges. But the, the where are all those people now? Where's Kirk McCambly? Yeah, well, McCambly went into uh, police protection, protective custody, because he gave evidence against Republicans who mm. were trying to extort money from him, right. from from his business. About this story uh, yeah, and his Yeah, because McCartney, McCambly was a drug dealer right. and we had exposed him as being a drug dealer. And uh, uh, that was another case that I was involved in by accident and never even knew anything about it. Mm. When they had, they, when they were putting the, the bite on him, they said, if you don't pay us money, we're going to give this story to Hugh Jordan. <laughs> so I was mentioned in the court right. case, but the police... Uh, successfully got prosecutions and convictions against that that gang. The um, as the kind of the the I suppose the paramilitary began moving completely into drug dealing, you were kind of starting to report on them for a whole different reasons, but they were the same cast of characters. Oh yeah, yeah. There was a lot of people easily transferred from uh, paramilitary gangs into simple crime gangs, without mm -hmm. doubt that. That, that was the case. I mean, we have a couple of front pages stories, a lot of them around the UVFs and, and various others that are involved. A lot of the kind of the loyalists in particular uh, involved in drug dealing and them being named and exposed yeah. that presumably yeah. the Republicans the same. Yeah, well... No, I was going to ask again, is it the same kind yeah, of... Not, are they not, a little not bit so less? Not so many. I yeah. mean, uh, certainly as the years went on, mm. Republicans who were involved in... But there were Catholic drug dealers. Yeah, of course. Yes, yeah. That, yeah. That, that, was the, that was the thing. Yeah. And we, I mean, we had a lot of dealings with the drug dealers. We, we, we actually bought drugs. Mm. That was another arrest. Uh, we we bought, brought drugs from a loyalist uh, drug dealer. And uh, w when I was driving away with the drugs, one of his friends phoned the police and told them. So was a, we were arrested for that. But we were able, uh, after a couple of years, to convince the police that it was pure, our purchase of the drugs was purely to highlight the drugs problem. The police dropped the charges. Now, you wrote a book about Johnny Adair. Just remind me the name of it. Mad Dog. Mad Dog, of course. And you also wrote a second book, um, called, and I have it, Milestones in Murder. Yes. Over the course of your career. Two books. Two books. Just two, Hugh. Yeah, and Just I contributed to a couple of other yeah. books as well. Anyway, you wrote those two books over the course of your career, and uh, you've had kind of a bit of a, you know, some of these people that you've been writing about and you've been a bit of a pest to over the years, you've all grown up maybe and matured, and maybe you all think a bit more. Yes. Um, you have an interesting relationship nowadays with Johnny Adair. Yeah. Which you probably never thought would have been possible. I'm quite astounded at that, really, mm. yeah. Well, Adair has matured. And, uh, I mean, the one thing that I have to say about him is when the peace came along, when the 1998 uh, peace agreement w was signed, Adair quit. Adair went down, there, went for it, said it was over, and he has never wavered from that. To this mm. day, any interview I've ever done with him, he always insists... The war is over. Let's go on with life. Let's go on with living. Give people a better thing to a better chance of life. That is his uh, enduring thing. So you can say, yeah, Johnny Dare was not a nice guy. He was a director of terrorism. The the courts got it right when they convicted him of that, but he has moved on, mm -hmm. which is why him and I are probably able to converse. And also perhaps. A lot of people have moved on. I've noticed just from the little bits I've been doing over the last while that it feels like people are ready to talk now. 
And, you know, a lot of people that have been victims of horrific crimes and, and you know, that has time been a bit of a healer over the last while? And has it, has it come to a place now where a lot of the secrets are beginning to be to come out? A lot of things are beginning to unravel and the truth is sort of coming forward a lot. Without doubt, Nicola, without mm. doubt, enough time has, has passed. The 25 years and we learn every week, we learn a bit more and we learn a bit about who was who. Now, what's going to happen, my belief, in the next 25 years, we will discover who the state assets were. Mm. I'm not talking about touts. I'm not talking about agents. I'm talking about assets, people who were centrally involved in paramilitary groups but had decided that it couldn't go on and they had some kind of association with representatives of both the British state and the Irish state and the Americans and 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 they were weaned off and we moved towards a democratic society. I think the, the people who played roles in that of varying degrees will emerge and uh, I think some people will be quite surprised about who was involved in that. Mm. And they'll have to tell their stories themselves for, for it to be. Or they may not, yeah. because uh, some of them will, some of them are dead. Yeah. But, uh, and we're, we're heading, that they're all in the, many of them are in the Last Chance Saloon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think it's going to be quite interesting. All, all this knowledge is start, starting to mm. feed out. And how do you personally keep up your enthusiasm for the job? Because every time I contact you, you're out on the doorstep. You're trucking around the country with Connor. You're doing God knows what. I'm sure half the time you can't tell me what you're at. But, yeah. um, you know, week after week, you have front page story still. You have a cracking story recently uh, relating to Tina Turner's um, song um, that Johnny... Simply the best. Simply the best that Johnny Adair tried to, to hijack. You have stories week in, week out. We were only talking over lunch there about... Uh, twins who have both died from the new synthetic drugs. Yes. Uh, having taken them, twins in their 40s, which is extraordinary, having taken them um, together at a party or from the same batch at least. So you you have an enthusiasm, an ongoing enthusiasm for journalism, for telling stories and doing so in the Sunday world. Yeah. So you're the past and you're the future. <laughs> well, I... I I found over the years, Nicola, that certainly in Northern Ireland, that did have a horrendous history. But why did it survive? It survived because there were more good people than there were baddies. There are good things happen every day mm. in Northern Ireland because people are decent and often humanity shines through. Now, as far as my role is concerned, I like telling stories I have a wee phrase, wee phrases, as in one of them is, tell me something I don't know. Mm. And the, 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 the black stories that are in behind the veil have to be told. And sometimes these come my way. And because I've developed a bit of a skill, I can I can bring them out. And, mm. and people appreciate that. And I, I certainly enjoy it. Mm. I, I've never lost my enthusiasm. No. Every day I worked in the Sunday World Office, I loved going in there. Yeah. I loved going in there. Yeah. And do you still wake up at the beginning of a week and think, I wonder what I'm going to be doing this oh, week? Oh, that's, that's why I said, yeah, yeah, I think a lot, yeah, you know. Yeah. I know. And and do you get, do you have this, I'm just trying to work out if we got similar personalities here, do you get this overwhelming sense of boredom when nothing has happened, like that it's going to crush you, that sort of ennui when things aren't busy or there's not somewhere to stick your nose in? Well, it happens uh, very occasionally, but it, it does happen. My friends tell me that I, I go quiet. Yeah. I go into a bit of a depression, depression. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, because I don't have the enthusiasm. But uh, the next day that can be gone, you know. Yeah, because like, I mean, that's the, the thing about the job. It's probably perfect for people with, uh, you know, attention difficulties. But because, you know, you could start a day out. Yeah, boring, and in the middle of it, something could happen, and all of a sudden, you're yes. on, you're onto something that you're going to be working on for, God knows, ten years or something. That, that's right. Yes, um, yes, yes. It's a great. So, I suppose finally, what are your thoughts, feelings, sentiments about the Sunday World? I think the Sunday World is a remarkable product, uniquely Irish, and it went through various 
phrase, phrases from from the early on. It was a, a remarkable thing to try in Ireland with a gill on the front page and these old farmers in various mm-hmm. parts of the country buying it. It was it was a scandal sheet, a school for scandal, and it went through through under different editors. Uh, it, it went through to what it is today, and I, th- I still think it is a remarkable product, and it is still rated because you have that mixture of uh, fun, uh, humour, uh, uh, and very serious journalism Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a peculiar mixture but it does work and the sunday world has a good reputation and i presume you have had a story that you couldn't print i never had a story that i couldn't print i don't believe you uh no we've had a few of course you have we've had a few (laughs) um is there anything that you can tell me about or will we have to just go off air for that (laughs) no no, i'll tell you off air i'll tell you (laughs) hugh jordan thank you very much Thank you. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.